Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Acts chapter 12 as we continue forward in the teaching series that we've been in for several months. It's the teaching series that, series that we've entitled Acts, the Gospel Unleashed. And just in case you did not know, or maybe you've forgotten, I don't know how you could, but uh, this year is an election year. And uh, technically speaking, the election is supposed to be over this Tuesday. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Uh, hopefully we'll have more room in our mailboxes and our news feeds will be a little bit cleaner following Tuesday. It's, sp- it's supposed to end, at least the voting part is, but there's no, you know, if we're honest, there's no telling how long it's going to be before we know the final results of the vote. And after that, how long it will be before the other party concedes. And I'm talking about either side of it. We don't know how long that's going to go on. And the, the voting may be over, but we all know that the consequences of this election are just the beginning of consequences for the future, regardless of which party wins. And, you know, this unknown has our nation in a place of unrest. And it kind of reminds me of Matthew chapter 2, where, remember the wise men when they came to Jerusalem and they came to King Herod? And they told him, hey, we're looking for the baby, the king of the Jews that has been born. And it says that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I believe that that, those verses capture what it's like right now in America. That's the current atmosphere of our nation. And you know what? The truth is this. I have my views about this election. And you know what? So do you. But guess what? I know that mine are right. Right? And so do you. But let me ask you this. I've got a question I want us to answer this morning. What if your candidate or candidate loses? What are you going to do if your candidate loses? Under, and are you going to be able to come under the administration of the other party? And as disciples of Jesus, I just want to remind us that we have dual citizenship We have an earthly citizenship. We were born humans on this earth, and God in his sovereignty placed us here as citizens, most of us as citizens of the United States of America, and that means that we should be model citizens. We should seek to uphold the laws that align with the laws of God and the heavenly kingdom while seeking the welfare. Scripture is clear. We need to seek the welfare of the city. We need to seek the welfare of the nation. But listen, we've got to be careful not to forget that first and foremost, we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Our true citizenship is in heaven. And what that should mean is that we desire a better country. We desire the the country where Jesus reigns without any type of opposition. And so um, we've got to be careful that we don't allow our allegiance, our heart, to be tied to a political party. Government is important. 
Don't miss what I'm saying here. Government is extremely important, but it's not our hope as believers. I want to unpack that a little bit more this morning. And uh, because many of us are asking, uh, how are we going to live if, if my candidate doesn't win? And I'm asking, how am I going to live regardless of which candidate li- uh, is elected? And you know what? Acts 12, our passage this morning, I believe speaks to that question and how we are supposed to live as disciples of Jesus, even if the election doesn't go as we had hoped. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to begin in uh, Acts chapter 12 and begin reading with verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now there's a lot that I want to look at in in verse 5 right now. The first thing is we see that the first person that we're going to meet in this passage is a guy named King Herod. And there are three Herods in Scripture in the New Testament that most of us are familiar with. There was Herod the Great. I mentioned him earlier uh, in when, when I was beginning. He is the king that killed all of the male babies in Bethlehem when he feared that this king that was born might Uh, pose a threat to his throne. He was an extremely evil king. We know that he had 10 wives. Uh, Some of them he killed. And we also know that he put to death some of his sons because Herod the Great was a paranoid and suspicious narcissist who eliminated any perceived opposition in his life and uh, against his throne. And There was a saying in Rome, and it went like this. It said, it is safer to be a pig in the house of Herod than it is to be one of his relatives, because you were more likely to die if you were one of his relatives. And he was a despised man. He was a hated ruler. The people did not like him, and he knew that. And so what he did was uh, he had some of the most noble and beloved citizens in the city to be arrested and imprisoned. And he said, on the day that I die, I want you to execute them so that there will be mourning in the city. That's how wicked he was. Now, that's Herod the Great. Herod the Great had a son named Herod Agrippa. Now, he's the guy, if you'll remember, uh, who arrested a guy named John the Baptist. He arrested him because John the Baptist uh, told Herod, look, you're headed in the wrong direction. You have taken your brother Philip's wife, Herodias, as your own. You're committing adultery. That is sin against God. He, pre- he preached righteousness. And so Herod arrested him and put him in prison and eventually beheaded him and put him to death. He's also the same Herod who mocked Jesus on the day that Jesus was on trial. And it's, that's one of the scariest passages to me because it says that Jesus did not speak a word to this Herod, because at some point, Jesus had said, I've done enough, and there's nothing else I can say to you that's going to change your mind. So that was Herod Antipas. Then there was Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great 
and the nephew of Herod Antipas. And he's the one that we just read about in verse one. And it says that he laid hands on James, the brother of John, and put him to death with the sword. In other words, he cut his head off. And if you'll recall, James and John were two brothers who were two disciples of Jesus. And Jesus affectionately nicknamed them the sons of thunder. And I believe he did this because these were two of those, you know, people that are kind of like fiery. They're just on fire. That's, that's what they were like. Uh, there was a time that Jesus was headed towards Jerusalem, and the shortcut was to go straight through Samaria. And so they sent messengers ahead, hey, let's come through. And they said, no, you can't come through here. And what do James and John do? Their fires get lit. And they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just consume these guys? I mean, they were fiery. They were passionate. And, and Jesus says, no, no. He rebukes them. He says, that's not the spirit in which I conquer in, in this age. And um, they also had a mom. And boy, I love moms. Don't y'all love moms? Uh, and something about a mama and their children. They want their children to succeed. And so their, uh, their mom goes to Jesus and they go, she goes, Jesus, you know when you're in your kingdom, would you let my two sons sit on your right hand and on your left hand? In other words, would you make them the greatest in the nation next to you? Doesn't that sound like a mama? And Jesus looks at, the, at uh, James and John and, and he says, you don't know what you're asking. He, and then, then he asks a question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, yeah, sure. We can, and obviously, I don't think that they knew what they were saying, but Jesus answers them and said, well, you know what? You will drink of that cup, and that's what's happened in this passage. James has drank the cup of persecution, and he has died for the name of Jesus. What a privilege, and I think it's clear here that this was a political move by Herod when he did this. Uh, he wanted to gain favor with the Jews because he knew how many of them there were in Jerusalem. And he realized that if he could make them happy, if he could get their approval, it would help him to advance his, his political career. And uh, this really isn't any different than it is today. I hope we realize this. P politicians still do this today with Christians, with believers, with God's people. And it's, it's not just one party, it's in all the parties. Why? Because there are so many professing believers. And so that is being done today. I hope as you are assessing political leaders that you won't just listen to what they say, that you'll also look at whether the fruit is in their life that proves that they are uh, disciples of Jesus. But we, we see that Herod is wanting to advance his career he kills James. When he sees that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, and he placed him in custody. And it says he placed him in custody under four squads of soldiers to guard him. Now, a squad was made up of four soldiers, and we're going to see that in verse 6, that this squad, two of them, were actually handcuffed and chained to Peter. So Peter's going to be in the middle of them, and then there's two that are standing outside the door of his cell. Uh, Herod wasn't going to take any chances of letting Peter get away again. He may have heard about how Peter had escaped earlier in the book of Acts, and he's like, that's not going to happen. And I believe that Luke is being very careful here to show that, humanly speaking, it was virtually 
impossible for Peter to escape. That is, humanly speaking. Because verse 5, it says, But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You see that? It says that the church was praying to the sovereign God for a miracle. Now, when we say that God is sovereign, now everything I'm going to say, about to say is review, but it will help us remember, uh, be reminded of some things that we already know. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he governs and rules the entire universe, and he has the power and the wisdom and the authority to do anything he chooses with his creation. Uh, That means, and I've said this before, that means that there is not a single atom or electron that is floating around that can somehow thwart God's sovereign will. I love what Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says. It says, I am God, and there is none like me. I'm going to read that again. That is powerful, isn't it? I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is sovereign, and he will accomplish all his purposes, which is true. And it also raises a question, doesn't it, when we talk about prayer? The, prayer, the question goes something like this. Since God is sovereign over everything, as Isaiah 46 just proclaimed, and we know that in the end his will will be done, then why should we pray? Have you ever asked that question? If God is sovereign and his purposes will be accomplished and, and they will stand, why do we need to pray? Well, I've got two main reasons of why we should pray. Number one, we should pray because prayer is commanded. That should be enough. God commands it in his prayer. He simply commands us to pray. First Thess- Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. James 5, 14, is anyone sick? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for, for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus himself said in Luke 18.1 that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. The number one reason that we should pray is because God commanded it. Secondly, we need to pray because prayer really affects outcomes. Prayer really affects outcomes, and that's because God has ordained prayer to be a major way that we participate with him to bring about his sovereign will. Luke twenty-two forty says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. In other words, when we pray for ourselves and each other, God hears our prayers and helps us to escape temptations and help us not to fall. Romans fifteen thirty-one says, pray that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. This is Paul speaking here. He believed that the prayers of the church would help rescue him 
from those who did not believe. Colossians 1.9 verse 10 says, We have not ceased to pray for you so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. Prayer assists us in walking with the Lord and bearing fruit. Um, and one, one other one that I did not, I'm not going to have up here is James 5.16. Listen to what James 5.16 says. It says that the prayer of a righteous man or the prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. Prayer really affects outcomes because God ordained it to do so. And God has invited us to, in, to participate in his work and experience the supernatural power and presence, not only in our lives, but also in the, in the lives of others through our prayers. So those are two reasons that we need to pray. God has commanded it, and our prayers really affect outcomes. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God needs our counsel when we pray. Um, we don't, he doesn't not know what he's doing, and our prayers kind of help. Oh, I didn't know to go that way. And we're also uh, not trying to twist his arm. We're not trying to, to get him to do something against his will. We're not kind of like, you know that kid, that, your child that comes up to you at the end of a service or at the end of school and goes, can, I, can so-and-so come over? And they do it right in front of the kid. My kids learned early that, that the, the answer is no. I don't care if I was going, no, no, we don't do it that way. So God's not like that. We don't have to pester him uh, and try to get him to, to do what we want him to do. And we're not trying to change God's mind because his plan was somehow inferior to ours. What we're doing is we are asking God to intervene in this world that we live. We're asking him to intervene as we seek to pray according to his will. And you know, there's some of us that don't like loose ends. Some of us um, want to understand things. We want to know the why, how things work, how they connect, kind of like math equations. There are some people that you give them a math equation and they're fine with that. That's all they need. How many of you are, are like that? You just give me the equation, I'll memorize it and I'll take a test. Then there, I know my wife's like that. But I'm not like that. I'm like, I don't just want the equation. I want to understand why it works and how it works, and it helps me to do this. Now, if that works with math, but if you're going to come to God's sovereignty and prayer like this, you're not going to be able to solve or fully understand the equation. We need to grasp this. His ways cannot be confined to our human understanding. And I don't understand how God's sovereignty and how our free will, our real choices work together to bring about his determined will. But I just know that they do. Scripture teaches that. And instead of saying that, you know, I'm not going to pray. You know, until I understand this, I'm not going to pray. Instead of saying that, we need to believe what Scripture says, like James 4.2, when it says, we do not have, why? Because we do not ask. Prayer, we need to be uh, prayer, believing that God hears our prayers and that he wants to affect things that are happening in our lives. And so God uses our prayers to affect the, outly, uh, the outward outcomes of earthly events. And it appears that the church in our passage understood this. And so they're praying that Peter would be released, not knowing 
if God was going to say yes or no. They didn't know if he would be released. And another thing we need to understand when we are praying is that we cannot predict or foresee what God is going to do when we pray. Um, He does not call us to try to figure out his will, but rather to pray in faith, trusting that ultimately God is in control, that in all things he works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, let's see what happens as the church prays, what God decides to do. For James, God decided to put him to death or allowed him to to die. Let's see what happens with Peter in verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, Peter in this verse does not look like someone who is about to face execution, does he? Uh, He doesn't seem to be too concerned. And, you know, honestly, Peter is, there's one thing that Peter is really good about doing, and that is sleeping. (laughs) If you look back, Peter slept when he slept on the Mount of Transfiguration, When Jesus is being transfigured, he was sleeping in the garden. Remember in the garden? Uh, Right before when he said, Lord, I'll be there for you. Where is he? He's sleeping. And now, again, he is sleeping in uh, between these two guards. It looks like he's wanting to get a good night's sleep. How was he able to sleep? Well, I think it's clear that he trusted God. And I heard a preacher say that um, the reason that he could rest was because he knew He wasn't going to die. He knew it wasn't his time. If you'll remember back in John chapter 21, when Jesus had risen from the dead and he's reinstating Peter, he says this to him in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, see that right there? Peter could have heard that part of the verse and said, you know what? I'm still young. I'm going to, Jesus said that when I'm old, I will, be, I will stretch out my hands and another will dress me and carry me where I do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And church tradition says that Jesus, uh, that Peter actually did die, crucified upside down on a cross. Um, now, whether or not that's the truth, whether he knew, whether that came into his mind, I'm going to die old, whether that happened or not, uh, I don't know. But one thing is for sure is that he is not anxious right now. He doesn't appear to be afraid of Herod. He does not be, seem to, to be afraid of dying. And then in verse 7 we read, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. That's how deep his sleep was. He had to be struck by an angel, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out, and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now, notice something here. 
that the angel did things for Peter that Peter did not have the power to do for himself. I could preach an entire message on what I'm about to share here. We don't have time to do that. But this is something that we need to grasp. Number one, the angel did what, for Peter what he could not do for himself. Number one, he freed him from the chains. Number two, he got him out of the cell past the guards without them either waking up or seeing it. Now, I don't think the guards would have been asleep because the guards knew if they let their prisoner get away, whatever was going to be sentenced to them would be sentenced uh, to, to them. Would be sentenced to them. And so I don't think that they were sleeping, but he got them past, the angel got him past the guards, and then he opened the gate to the city. But what he did not do, he did not swoop in, pick up Peter, put on his uh, garb and his sandals, and then carry him outside of the city. Why? Into the city. Why? Because Peter had the power to do that for himself. And we need to understand that God does not do for us what we should be doing, that he's do for ourselves. Not that we can do anything apart from him, but he gives us graces. He gives us powers. He gives us ability. He gives us opportunities that he's wanting us to take advantage of. And if we don't, we should not expect an angel to come and and do them for us. God knows that if he does that for us, it will cripple us. It will keep us from growing. And we've got to be careful that when we're dealing with each other's or others, that we don't do for others what they should be or could be doing for themselves. Otherwise, we will cripple them. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Notice what Peter does here. He glorifies God. As soon as he realizes this really happened, Peter turns his attentions to God and gives him glory for his deliverance. He doesn't go, man, I put on my sandals and my clothing and I walked out. He, he makes significant, uh, understands that this was a significant rescue and that it was done by the Lord. Verse 12 says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a, a servant girl named Rhoda came to, to answer. That, that name Rhoda means Rose, uh, came and answered the door. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. Girl, you're crazy. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, I think that uh, they believed that God could answer their prayer. I don't know that they thought he would. I think, in, according to what they're saying here, uh, they must have decided that uh, God had decided not to deliver Peter and that he had already been put to death and that was his ghost that was standing outside of their door. Verse 16, it says, but Peter continued knocking. This is, a, this is funny. This is meant to be uh, humorous to see. This is, they are just human like we are, aren't they? Peter kept knocking and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. There he does it again. He gives glory to God. And he said, tell these things to James 
and to the brothers. And don't miss this last sentence. Then he departed and went to another place. You know what Peter's doing here? He's hiding himself from Herod. Um, This is very instructive for us because it teaches that Peter isn't expecting God to perform another miracle. Uh, He's not acting presumptuously and, and going out in the middle of the street and going, yo, Herod, is that all you got? He's not being foolish. Uh, He's walking in wisdom. And that's what, this is instructing us that we need to walk in wisdom too. Uh, That's why we don't leave our social security number or our banking statements just laying around for anyone to look at. Uh, That's why we don't take a credit card and charge things when we don't have the money to pay for them. That's why, young people, we study for our exams not asking that the the angel would show up and give you the answers on the day of the test. That's why, church, we don't put ourselves in situations, compromising situations where we will be tempted, hoping that God will send us an angel in the midst of our temptation to to rescue us. And, you know, sometimes the thing is, as as church people, we can spiritualize things when simply they, we just need to walk in sober obedience and wisdom. And that's what Peter is doing right here. He knows that God has rescued him from Herod, and so he does what he knows to do. He hides himself so that he can continue to advance the gospel. Now, there's something in this passage that stands out to me that uh, I want to address. It's a question that might have been arisen, arisen in your head, and it's this. Why did God choose to deliver Peter but not James. That's right there in the passage. Let me ask you this. Do you think the church wasn't praying for James, that that's why God didn't deliver him? I I doubt it. I have no doubt that the church was praying for James. Um, The question that I'm asking is, why did God say yes, in one sense, to Peter and no to James? And the answer is very simple, and you can write this down, because it glorified God. The reason he did what he did is because it glorified God. God was exalted. Uh, You might say, well, I I can understand God being exalted in Peter being set free, but how was God exalted in the death of James? And we need to understand that if you are a disciple of Jesus and you are following God, I believe that we are bulletproof. I believe that nothing can stop us and nothing can take us out of this world until God decides to do so. And Clearly, James had fulfilled his purpose in life. God could have sent an angel and saved James in the same manner that he did or done something even greater. But he decided, God chose that, James, you have fulfilled your purpose, and now I'm going to reward you and allow you to die. Now, remember, I spoke about this last week. Death for the believer is our friend, isn't it? Because it frees us from these earthly bodies and lets us be with the one that we want to be with. So God was exalted in the death of James, and apparently he had more to do through Peter and for Peter uh, before he released him and rewarded him. And like I said before, uh, Peter died crucified upside down in, in honor of his Savior. Two unpredictable situations both ending differently with God being glorified in both 
situations. Verse 18. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. They went down from Judea to Caesarea. I'm sorry. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. I believe that they were flattering him. Um, They were giving him praise that is due only to God. And look at what verse 23 says. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because, why? He did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Do you see the contrast between Herod and God's people? Um, James was put to death for righteousness. Herod was put to death for his unrighteousness. When Peter was delivered, he praised God. He glorified God as God's people do. When Herod, Herod was praised, he received it. He took what, was, that he, what he thought was his, which actually belonged to God, and God judged him. And verse 24 is really, to me, the summary or the encouragement that I want us to all get from this morning, from this passage. It says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. But the word of God continued to increase and multiply. God, this is a verse that summarizes everything. It shows that God is sovereign. It shows that God is over all things. He's over opposition. God wins. And what he has decreed will come to pass. So this morning, as you are thinking, if you're thinking about the election that's coming up this year uh, on Tuesday, that's going to hopefully end on Tuesday, and you're asking, what if your candidate loses? We've got this passage is teaches us. This passage reminds us of a few things. Number one, we need to remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember that he is sovereign. Remember that he is ruling. Remember that he has been raised from the dead. He is alive. There's nothing going on right now that he is not aware of. There's nothing going on that has his hands bound. He is in control. His counsel shall stand, and he will accomplish all his purposes. So don't be afraid, okay? Number one, do not be afraid as believers. I didn't say don't be concerned. I said don't be afraid. Number two, remember that God rescues his people. This passage reminds us of that. God rescues his people, Remember James, remember Peter. Again, two disciples that deeply loved Jesus, and he gave two different endings 
but both were ultimately delivered by Jesus. Where are they at right now? They are in the presence of Jesus. And when we get to that campfire, they are going to share what happened at the end of their lives. Remember that Jesus rescues his people. And remember in that, we know that he's going to rescue us because he already has. He rescued us from our sins. He took care of our greatest problem, our greatest enemy. Actually, we were the ones that were the enemies. God, the wrath of God. He totally paid for that. He, it was totally drained out upon him when he died for our sins. And so if he's going to deliver us from our greatest problem, he will deliver us from the rest. We also need to remember that God deals with his enemies. God deals with his enemies. This is what this passage is teaching us. Those who oppose God, those who refuse to receive his offer of peace, who, who will not bow their knee to his love and to his mercy and to his kindness, God will eventually deal with them. Jesus is patient, he's merciful, and he's kind. But there comes a point when God says, okay, enough. And that's what happened in this, in this passage. Psalm 37, 1 through 3 says, Fret not yourself. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Do not be afraid. Do not be envious of people that seem to be uh, advancing themselves through unrighteousness. Why? For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Now, that should, we shouldn't be going, yeah, I can't wait for that day. We need to be saying, no, let's uh, preach the gospel that they may not experience that. But they, if they choose not to, understand that God will deal with them. And then this is what we are to do. Trust in the Lord. This is verse 3 of Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do what? Good. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Dwell in Asheville. Dwell wherever uh, in your home. Dwell at the job that God has placed you. Dwell in the school where he has you. And befriend faithfulness. Look out for the welfare of wherever God has you planted. And lastly, pray. Simply pray. We need to pray that God will save sinners. We need to pray that he will revive our churches. Men, we need to pray that God will grant the men in churches to repent and to lead, to wake up, to understand what is at stake. We need to be praying for men. Uh, gentlemen, I want to encourage you, if, if you've not... Uh, made this decision. I want to encourage you, if you can, this Wednesday night at seven o'clock to log on. We're going to be on, uh, like Steve said earlier, we're going to be having a Zoom prayer time. You know, the women are, are already praying at eight o'clock on Monday nights. They've been doing it for months. Gentlemen, I'm asking uh, that we would turn and begin to pray together and see what God does through us. And also, we need to pray that the Word of God that the gospel will increase, that it will multiply, that lives will be transformed and God will be glorified. And with that said, let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
Um, you are king. But you are not king because uh, we the people voted you in. On the contrary, we the people opposed you and rejected your rule and authority. And yet in your mercy and your kindness and in, in your love for the sons of Adam, you came to earth and you were willing to be punished for the sins and the rebellion that we had displayed against you by dying for us on the cross. And you defeated death. You were raised from the dead. We worship, we pray to, we serve a risen Savior who has conquered death and put away our sin. And you have clothed us who have believed in you with the righteousness of God. And one day every knee is going to bow before you and every tongue is going to confess that you are the sovereign Lord. And right now you are offering salvation. You're offering peace to all who will do that now. And therefore, we, your people, who have come to you, who have trusted in you because of your great mercy and your great love for us, uh, we come to you as your ambassadors and we pray that you would fill us with your spirit afresh, that we might live lives that are worthy of the gospel, that we would live lives worthy of the gospel in private and in public, and that we would be your ambassadors who faithfully and graciously and firmly warn those around us of not only the wrath to come, but the, the salvation that you have purchased for us, that we do not have to perish, that you would help us to proclaim that today is the day of salvation, that today is the day to call upon your name and be saved. Lord, we pray that you would move in our lives, in our homes, in our places that you have us, in our state, our cities, our states, our nation, throughout the world, that you would bring about a great awakening by your spirit of your salvation, your love, and your desire to redeem man. And as November 3rd approaches, Lord, I pray that you would help us, your people, not to walk in fear. Lord, we are concerned. We are concerned about where we live. Uh, we are concerned about the people that we are around, that you have placed us around. We're, we're concerned um, what this election could mean and will mean. But Lord, help us to remember that you are sovereign over all things, that, that there is nothing that is outside of, of your control. You are sitting, sitting on your throne. You are seated. And so we pray that thy kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth. Your will would be done in our homes, in our cities, in our states, in our nation. Your, your will would be done in this election that is taking place, knowing that you are God and there is none like you. And we, we pray that regardless of the outcome of this election, that you will be glorified, that your counsel would stand, your purposes would be accomplished. And Father, I ask that you would unite and revive your churches, that we would experience a fresh awakening by your Holy Spirit, that your word would awaken our hearts and our minds and go forth 
I ask that you would grant repentance and accomplish, accomplish salvation in the lives of many. And we ask this for your name's sake, that Jesus might be known. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.